It's the perfect crime. Lure the victim to your basement. Kill them however you prefer. Lead pipe, revolver, anything works. Once they're dead, be sure to strip them of their valuables so you can maximize your profit. Then, whenever you're ready, roll the 40-gallon drum onto its side and shove the body inside. Depending on the size of your victim, it may be difficult. You'll likely have to bend their limbs this way and that. But once they're in, stand the drum back up and get the sulfuric acid. Wait! Make sure to grab your gas mask. That stuff is toxic. Pour the acid in the barrel, then relax. Take a load off, grab some dinner, come back in a couple of days and give it a stir. You should be good to go. No evidence. You're as good as innocent. Oh, and if anyone starts getting suspicious, kill them too. I'm Laura. I'm here with my best friend Marina. And this is Grim. It was the give it a stir <laughs> that really put me over the edge mm, on mm-hmm. that description mm-hmm. because I just, I pictured, I pictured like Catherine Knight's soup where like the eyeball just like bloop to the top, but yeah. probably not even because it's no, gone. It's more sludgy, sludgy. That, and I was also picturing mm-hmm. the scene from Breaking Bad where they did that, but in the bathtub yes. and it ate through the bathtub and yes, it yeah, fell through yeah. the ceiling with you all the- You gotta be careful with that stuff, you know? Goo. Mm-hmm. Lots mm-hmm. of human goo. So much goo. So much goo. Oh yeah. boy. Oh. We're, we're in for a journey today. I'm ready. You yep. took us on a serious journey in that <laughs> opener. So I had a lot of fun writing that actually. I very much enjoyed it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. a little step by step. Enjoyed. You know? I think we've d- d- determined that the adjectives are tough. <laughs> I didn't yep. enjoy it in the best way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so thank not you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're going to, I'm going to take you on a journey. It'll be good. So we're going to start with someone called Olive Durand Deacon. She was the widow of John Durand Deacon, a war hero and successful lawyer, or solicitor, as they say in England. Mm, Very fancy. Mm, Yes. In 1949, she was living at the swanky Onslow Court Hotel in London, and she had been there for the previous few years. And although she was quite wealthy, which if you couldn't gather from her living at like a five-star hotel for a few years. But also what a rich name. Like, oh, I'm Olive Deacon. Mm, Durand Deacon. Oh, Olive Durand Deacon. Yes, at the Onslow Court Hotel. (laughs) Mm, Yes. Anyway, she was 69 years old and she was looking to occupy her time with something productive. She had an idea for fake fingernails, which would probably have been quite successful with the post-war focus on women's glamour. Sharing this idea with a fellow hotel guest would cost her her life. Oh, no. On February 19th, 1949, Ms. Constance Lane, a close friend of Olive's who also lived at the hotel, was contacted by a man whom Olive was supposed to meet, but she hadn't shown up. That evening, Constance noted that Olive wasn't at dinner. She was also missing from breakfast the next morning. After talking with the maid, Constance found out that Olive hadn't returned to her room all night. This was very unlike Olive, who was known for her strict routine. That, combined with Olive's business no-show, led Constance to be extremely concerned. And on February 20th, she went to the police station in Chelsea, joined by the man who had contacted her. They reported Olive as a missing person. Hmm. 
The man who accompanied Constance was John Hay. He was a handsome young man who was noticeably polished in looks and manner. In addition to being stylish and well-spoken, he was very clean. Okay. It's, it's a bit of a weird, speaking of adjectives, it's a bit of a weird way to describe someone, but it was well known that he compulsively washed his hands and he always wore gloves. Oh. Even stranger, he was just 35 and it struck many as odd that he elected for the company of the many wealthy elderly women at the hotel. It struck many. That seems pretty obvious to me what's going on. Mm, oh yeah? What's going on? Well, oh no, not like his not like his murder plot. I'm just saying if you see like a young handsome man with uh-huh. like an older wealthy oh, woman, sure. like it's a cougar and he's he and, a but sugar he was, mama. That's true. He was with a lot of them, but like at dinner and that's who he'd spend his time with and that was not the clientele at the hotel. Okay. You also have me wondering if the inventor of fake nails is a homicidal maniac. <laughs> Who stole the idea from poor Olive Durant Deacon? No, no. Well, you know what? I can't confirm or deny that. You didn't research the history of fake nails? Funny, I almost did. Wow. Because I was like, oh, I wonder if that was the first idea for them. I'm disappointed in you. I know, I know. That may be a Peabody deep, deep, um, deep, deep dive. Dive. Into the history of nails. Yep, yep. Wow, that was a missed opportunity right there. Sorry. Next one. Next Peabody. So John was helpful during the initial search for Olive, maybe too helpful. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. At least that's what Sergeant Lamborn, who had been assigned to take interviews around the hotel, thought as she patiently listened to his all-too-smooth answers and well-practiced concern for Olive's whereabouts. See, I hate that people that are involved get involved in the investigation because they make it a damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't situation. Yes. So, like, if you are guilty and you're like, I want to be nowhere near this investigation, they're like, "Mm, they seem very withdrawn (laughs) and sketchy. But then if you're like, well, I have nothing to do with it. I want to help them find this person. And they're like, "Mm, they seem very involved and sketchy. Like, yeah, you can't win. I Well, I think the winning is you get a lawyer. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think that's, I think we just don't talk to people exactly. and get a lawyer. Yes, top. A stop. solicitor. A solicitor. Get the top solicitor. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, her interview with the hotel manager confirmed her suspicions when he gave her details about some of John's unsavory characteristics, including his many debts at the hotel. Sergeant Lamburn decided to do a background check on John, and boy, did she hit pay, pay dirt. They had background checks in 1949? Evidently. Now, I don't know if it was like, I'm pretty sure it wasn't in a computer. They checked the Rolodex. (laughs) I think they literally went to the police station and said, do you know this man? Is there anything to tell us about? Check your dusty manila folder. Yes, exactly. So John had been arrested several times in the past for all sorts of flavors of fraud and theft. This was enough to prompt the police to investigate him further, beginning by searching where he worked. He rented a two-story brick building on Leopold Road for the clothes hanger manufacturer Hursley Products. Completely separate from the main company, John claimed he was the director of experimental work, which consisted of a conversion job. Did you, he just like made up a title? The title was made up. A conversion job apparently was a common term in the industry, meaning to break down materials in strong acid. I mean, that's exactly what he was. Yeah, he did lie about many things, but that that activity was not a lie. Right. Okay. Police searched the building and surrounding yard, which was closed in by a six foot fence inside the building. It looked more like a science lab than a factory. There were tools and trays and bottles filled with presumably acid on the walls hung rubber aprons and gas masks. They also found rubber boots and gloves to match. 
all things I suppose one would need if they're performing a conversion job. I was going to ask too if if it had anything to do with making hangers. Does making hangers require sulfuric acid and rubber I boots? I don't know what he was converting. I, <laughs> I don't know. Uh-huh. No wire hangers. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but as they moved through the building, they began to find some strange items. A marriage certificate, mm. several passports, IDs. None of these bore John's name. I don't think that's strange at all. No. no. <laughs> then they found a man's hat box, and in inside was a thirty-eight revolver and eight rounds of ammunition. And they were able to determine that the gun had recently been fired. Oh. Oh, indeed. Uh-oh, indeed. Oh. More damning. They found a dry cleaning receipt for a fur coat, which was traced back to Olive. Oh, poor Dun, Olive. dun, dun. Yes. Olive Durant Deacon. Yes. Now, I'm sure you are appropriately suspicious of John at this point. Mm-hmm. So let me tell you a bit more about him. Oh, John Hay. John Hay. Hey, hey, hey. hey, hey. <laughs> I said that I had to write it out because it's H-A-I-G-H, and I kept wanting oh. to say hi. So I had to oh, say okay. it in my head. Hey, hey, hey. Wait, I have to drop one for uh, my cousin Lori. Hey, hey, hey. Okay. Thank you. You're okay. welcome. You'll have other opportunities if you'd like. Oh, okay. I'm ready. <laughs> John George Hay was born on July 24th, 1909 in Lincolnshire, England. His father, John Robert Hay, see, I want to say hi. 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 Uh, Hay was an engineer. His mother named Emily um, and he were members of a conservative Protestant sect called the Plymouth Brethren. And sometimes it was referred to as the peculiar people. <laughs> oh, so it things are going real well. Very conservative. Extremely extremely did they have big buckles on their hats i i don't know um i they were purists we'll just leave it at that okay Uh, we won't leave it at that i'll tell you more details (laughs) (laughs) so they were not allowed to entertain themselves by anything other than reading the bible so yeah no going to shows no reading books oh yeah exactly Mm -hmm. the kids couldn't play sports um john had a ton of friends just kidding he had a very lonely childhood (laughs) Uh, most of his interactions were with animals and pets, mm. not humans. And unlike, in a good way, though. Yes. Okay. Which is weird because he didn't have good interactions with humans. But yeah, he really, I guess, loved pets. I don't know. I feel I don't know. I feel like there are some serial killers, right? Who are yeah. like, don't ever hurt my dog, but I just right. murdered that whole family. I think so. There is a, a case, um, and I'll forget to mention it later, so I'm going to tell you now. One of his victims, he took everything they had and then kept their dog, too, because he liked it. And your little dog, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Wow. So it was not surprising that he spent most of his time with pets. His father said they should minimize their interactions with the outside world, and that's why he put up a 10-foot fence around his property. Oh, wow. Despite this environment... John was a studious child with a particular talent for the piano. Perhaps thanks to that skill, he won a scholarship to a prestigious grammar school and then moved on to a religious prep school serving as a choir boy. Very wholesome. I'm surprised that he was into religion. I don't think it was by choice. (laughs) Now, John says his parents' fanatically religious household traumatized him, giving him recurring religious nightmares for the rest of his life. Oh, it's like the spooky Mormon hell dream. From the Book of Mormon. I haven't seen it. Okay. Proceed. Yeah. He does have... I'm going to tell you about a dream, though. Okay. John recounts that his father would tell him that the Lord was always watching, and if he did anything wrong, Satan would mark him with a blue pencil. 
showing his own blue scar on his forehead. His father's scar was from a previous accident at work, but John didn't know that as a child. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. This fear kept John in line for a while, but once he finally did something bad and then a blue mark failed to appear on his body, he determined that his father had been lying and in fact he could do anything he wanted without repercussions. Oh my gosh, I just picture that little boy doing something like stealing something yeah. and running back to his room and like pulling up a yes. shirt and checking everywhere so for a blue mark. Yes, it sounds like that's exactly it. Oh yep. my gosh. Now, once he graduated, he started an engineering apprenticeship, but I guess that wasn't for him. He left after his first year, tried out several jobs in advertising and insurance, but those didn't last long either. Oh, but we love insurance. We do. <laughs> it's always, it's always ever present. In ever Grim. present. <laughs> when he was just 21, he was fired for stealing money from a cash box. Mm -hmm. Apparently deciding legal work wasn't for him. He took up forging car documents. Well, that kind of is legal work. Hmm. Is it? Sure. As opposed to illegal? <laughs> well, I mean, you're doing transactional work. <laughs> yeah. I know. Actually, when I wrote that, I was like, no, he wasn't. He wasn't doing legal work. Right. Like, <laughs> anyway. It's, tra <laughs> it's transactional. It's fine. It's fine. I could see him <laughs> making that argument, actually. Yeah. So he had read about a scheme in the newspaper where a man would lease a car and then sell it to someone else, pocketing the profit. John thought it seemed like an easy way to make a lot of money. He apparently ignored the fact that the article ended with the fraudster in jail. <laughs> Minor details. Classic. Yep. So John decided to try that crime, but alter it, alter it a little bit. He would find a car salesman who was in financial trouble. He'd offer to take over the shop, splitting the profits from new sales. Except the new sales were ones that he cultivated, kind of. He would fake the purchase of a non-existent car. The shop he'd taken over would advance the money for the purchase, and then John would take it. It's a terrible scheme. Right. Terrible. And he only got away with it for a couple months. Around the same time, he met 23-year-old Beatrice Hammer. John and Beatrice, who went by Betty, were married on July 6, 1934. She was a reluctant bride. She had questions about his character and how he earned money. Neither her parents nor John's approved of the marriage, but John's parents did allow the newlyweds to live with them. That's how you want to be described on your wedding day, as reluctant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. John and Betty quickly conceived a child, but the honeymoon phase didn't last long. Really? With yeah. a reluctant don't bride? Say. <laughs> don't say. Well, you remember that scheme that, that John tried to go with? Well, the, those illegal activities caught up with him. And mm. later that same year in November, he was put in jail for fraud. Mm -hmm. Betty had seen all she needed to see. She gave birth to their daughter, put her up for adoption, and divorced John oh. while he was finishing out his 15-month sentence. John's family must have perished. They did. In fact, they disowned him. Yeah, yep. I can see that. Yep. I, yeah. Yep. He, he made himself feel better by telling her that it didn't matter. Their marriage wasn't real anyway, since he'd had a wife already when they were wed. Oh. Uh, that is a complete lie. What a nice guy. <laughs> he didn't have that. What a nice guy. I don't guy. know why he said that. To hurt her feelings. I guess. So John was once again free in many ways in 1936. He moved to London and decided to pursue a more proper career. He found a job as a chauffeur for a man named William McSwan. William owned arcades and had made a lot of money from it. John had a good relationship with William and his family, but he was again tempted by illicit activities. He left his job with the McSwans and took up a new job pretending to be a lawyer. Mm, these names are great, though. The McSwans. Yeah, aren't That's they? That's great. So in this, in this capacity as a fake lawyer, he sold fraudulent stocks, which he claimed came from the estates of his non-existent clients. 
That seems like a better scheme, though. I think so. Yeah. I think so. That went a little longer, but in 1937, so just a year later, he was finally caught for, for the stupidest of reasons. Not for fraud, really. He had misspelled the name of a town on his letterhead, and this just raised enough suspicion that he was looked into. Oh, that's so unfortunate it for him. It is. It is. Uh, he couldn't have Googled just it? Just Google it. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> what was this, 1936? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so he ended up serving four years in prison for that. Uh, this gave him a lot of time to think about how to perfect his crimes. He realized that the only reason he kept getting caught was that the people he was swindling were still alive to figure it out. Oh, that's the key to Silly it. Silly mistake, that's right? That's the key to it. I know. He was not phased with the idea of killing someone. He was more concerned about how to dispose of the body, since he wholeheartedly described to one of our favorite grim jingles, no body, no crime. Mm. No body, no crime. Eh, eh, eh. No body, no crime. Coming to Apple Music. <laughs> just kidding. That's it. That's all you get. That's just you that get. part. Yeah. <laughs> so he spent his time in prison researching ways to dispose of a corpse, ultimately landing on the idea of dissolving it in acid. And he practiced on mice in the, prin- the prison's tin shop. Oh, why did he have sulfuric acid in he the prison's tin shop? I had the same question. So I was like, do you need sulfuric acid in a tin shop? I don't. I tried not to research it. Uh, but I guess he got it from the other prisoners who somehow just had sulfuric acid. I'll be like, I'll give you <laughs> three cigarettes. A, yeah. For- <laughs> a chug of sulfuric acid for two soups. <laughs> I think it went something like that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, I think that the approach uh, for dissolving a corpse in, in uh, acid was inspired by the French murderer, George Alexander Sarre, who used sulfuric acid to make his victims disappear in the early 1920s. So this was coming, starting oh. to come out in the news. Unoriginal. <laughs> right? Love Just him. copied someone. Yeah. Uh, grim fact, Sarre was executed by guillotine. Um, that's the only bit of the fact. I just really think that's cool. Oh. I just cannot. Fascinating. I cannot imagine. And people would gather yep. to oh, watch yeah. someone's head be chopped off. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine a basket full of heads? How many do you think they did at once? I mean, all the movies that I've seen, <laughs> yeah. it's at least like four or five. <laughs> yeah, I right. don't know. I guess, it, I guess mm-hmm. it depends. They're like lined up, right? Yeah. I, I don't know. Would you prefer death by guillotine or hanging? Guillotine, because I think that it is more likely to be certain. Hanging feels like it could be messed up. Yeah, and actually I've heard that you can be alive for quite a while after you're hung. If your neck doesn't break, Mm -hmm. you just suffocate. Yeah. I think your head is still alive for a few seconds after it's chopped off by guillotine, though. I'm I'm thinking about what would need to be required. Like, what would you need to have to make that the case? I guess that would be true because you'd have enough very short but enough blood in your your head. Yeah, your brain. Yeah. Huh. Mm. That's too bad. But you, you wouldn't feel any pain. Right? Because all your nerves are gone. <laughs> They're detached. <laughs> They're detached. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Let's try it out. Yeah. <laughs> Let's find out. Let's find out. Guys, if you have ever been decapitated <laughs> via guillotine, send us a Gmail. <laughs> Let us know. <laughs> anyway, back in London, many nonviolent prisoners were being released early when World War II began. John was one of them. He was set free in 1940 after just three years. Okay. In what was evidently a pattern, John again started with a legitimate job as an accountant with an engineering firm. While at a bar one night, I'm pretty sure they didn't call it happy hour. 
back then, but I would like to think that he was there for the discount drinks and apps. (laughs) He ran into none other than William McSwan, whom he worked for before as a chauffeur. Wait, I'm sorry. Also, you didn't look up the history of the term happy hour because you're really slipping. Oh my god. There's just going to be an extra, extra people. That's just just the history of random things from our episodes. I like that. It'll be just like a Wikipedia dump, but I think it'll be fun. Okay, maybe. We'll see. (laughs) I just, I'm fascinated with these things. I don't know. Maybe it was, maybe it did start that early. Maybe. I don't know. Anyways. Happy hour. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. It was like the happiest of hours. (laughs) Yeah. Of course, I'm thinking like 1800s. It was like 1940 something, right? Yeah. It wasn't that, I guess that is long ago. I'm historically (laughs) challenged. So (laughs) along with being geographically challenged, I'm just challenged (laughs) at a lot of things. I believe I said I was geologically challenged. (laughs) You did. So so. (laughs) we're all challenged. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. William ended up introducing John to his parents, Donald and Amy, and John got pretty close to the McSwan family. But John was envious of their wealth, much of which was gained by buying and selling property. His schemes from his time in prison began to swirl in his head. Mm. On September 6th, 1944, William McSwan disappeared. John had rented space in the basement of a building on Gloucester Street. It was here that he brought William and hit him over the head with a lead pipe. I see a, a clue joke here. Yes. After he was dead, John took William's valuables and clothing. He then struggled to put William's body into a 40-gallon drum. John was only 5'8", and William was much larger. He ended up having to put the 40-gallon drum on its side and literally stuff William in. Wow. And this took a while, since he was heavy, and John had to essentially fold him in half. He didn't work out in prison to prepare himself for this feat? No, he was very unprepared for this first one. Wow. Shame on him. Once William's body was inside the drum, John righted it put William's clothes on top, and filled it with concentrated sulfuric acid. Mm -hmm. This was no small feat either. The the acid gave off fumes that caused him to have to go outside for some air every now and then. Because he didn't have a gas mask yet? No, not yet. Finally, it was full. Exhausted, John went home to bed and let his experiment work. Gross. Mm. A couple of days later, John returned to see what progress had been made. He was met with a vat of blackish, thick sludge with red streaks in it. Oh, gross. And of course, it smelled awful. Oh, my God. He stirred the viscous mixture and saw that it was not entirely liquefied, but enough so that he could carry on with his plans. He used a separate bucket to slowly pour William's remains down a street drain. I'm going to gag. Yeah. He had to use a stick. (laughs) You're not going to like this. He had to use a stick to shove some more of the solid bits through the grate. Oh, poor William. Very, very. At least he went probably pretty cool. Like, this was all after he was dead, at least. Oh, I know. Oh, God. That Mm -hmm. is disgraceful to do with a human body. Yes. And (laughs) I I shouldn't laugh, but... I should tell you that this is the direction I thought your liquid Matthew Peabony mm-hmm. was going to go. Yes. Just based on the title. Yeah. yeah. It didn't go that <laughs> oh, way. <thank> God. <laughs> now, obviously, William's parents noticed he was missing. John told them that William had fled to Scotland to avoid being drafted for the war. They believed him for a while because William had apparently talked of something similar in the past and John would fake uh, postcards and send them to his parents. <sighs> Diabolical. Mm-hmm. But as the war was winding down, they began pushing as to why they hadn't heard from William. John decided they were too curious. On July 2nd, 1945, he told them that William had returned and that he was waiting at John's rented basement for a surprise visit. 
I mean, of na- course. naturally, where else of would course. you have a heartwarming reunion? Right. right. A basement. Yeah. Naturally. Why, why he wouldn't just arrive at their house uh-huh. and why the surprise, everyone knew about the surprise. Right. So it's not a surprise. <laughs> so, but they went with it. I don't think that word means what you think it means, John. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. Uh, once Donald and Amy arrived, they met the same fate as their son. Lead pipe. Lead. That's literally my next <laughs> sentence. Lead pipe, vat of sulfuric acid. Oh. This went much more smoothly for John. He had learned from William's death and had since bought a gas mask and other supplies to make it easier. Oh, good for him for improving. Yeah. Continuous improvement, we call it at work. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> With no one left to look for the missing McSquans, John moved into their house and cashed all their checks, continued to sell property in their name, and basically took all their money. Oh my gosh. Uh Because again, I mean, we're, we're not in, you know, uh, the 1800s, but it's still early enough that it's mid-century. So there's, it's early enough that, uh, everyone just went with it. He just forged everything. Yeah. I'm thinking, I don't exactly remember when that movie it is, but I was thinking of, um, Leo DiCaprio and Catch Me If You Can. Okay. Can I say super strange? We were deciding what to watch on Netflix the other night, and that was, or maybe HBO or something, and it was on there, and I said to my husband, oh, have you seen that? We should watch it. It's a good movie. Then I was on, like, now this isn't that creepy because Big Brother is always listening, but on, like, (laughs) TikTok or whatever, a a scene from Catch Me If You Can came on, and now you just mentioned it, and now I'm weirded out, and I want to watch it. that is a little weird, but... I feel that's when he was forging the documents yeah. and the paperwork. and I bet it know, was around the same time. Yeah, they're advanced yeah. enough, but yeah. not enough that they can check these They're like, we want to see ID. Yeah. That, You're work, like, that works. Yeah. Here's my paper. Here's my paper ID <laughs> card with yeah. Yeah, a picture taped on it. Yep. Yep. So, he, so he, that's what he did. Uh, and he used this money to fund other scams. And he continued to just swindle people, which is my favorite word. Swindle. Yeah. Good one. But even with this income, he was running out of money. It was time for another murder. Oh, jeez. Dramatic page flip. He needed to use all that money to invest to make legitimate money. Uh-huh. I mean, he had the ideas right. Use money to make more money, invest back in the business, just Um, on the wrong side of the law. Wrong business. Yeah. Yeah. So although he hardly had two coins to rub together, John knew how to pretend that he belonged among the ultra wealthy. He told people he was a liaison officer facilitating things between uh, patents, inventors, engineering firms so very very legitimate it's like mm, yes llc's and trade agreements are <laughs> yes. very important mm, yes <laughs> <laughs> through his social circle he met 52 year old dr archibald henderson and his wife rose who was 41 archibald it doesn't get more aristocratic than that no archie mm, mm, okay. mm-hmm. they were selling their house and john claimed he wanted to buy it for way more than asking Obviously, he didn't have this money, but he told them that some investments just hadn't panned out, so there were no hard feelings. The Hendersons were understanding, and they actually really liked John, so the group became friendly. He entertained them at the piano, and they provided the booze. It was a win-win. Yeah. He spent four months embedding himself in their lives and learning all sorts of details about them. They trusted him, and he took advantage. During this time, John moved from the rented basement to the two-story brick building on Leopold Road under the guise of working for Hustley Products. On February 12, 1948, 
Dr. Henderson accompanied John to the building. Oh, we're back to the co-hanger place? Uh, yes, but he okay. had moved it from one basement to another basement. Oh, okay. So he had a, the, the basement before was just the basement. Now we have a building and a basement. Okay. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Clear. Gotcha. Okay. When they arrived, John shot him in the head with Dr. Henderson's own revolver that he had stolen. Brutal. Leaving Dr. Henderson's body there, he went back to the Henderson's household and retrieved Rose, saying that her husband was ill and she must come at once. Oh. Shortly after they arrived back at the building, he shot her too. He disposed of their bodies in a 40-gallon drum filled with acid and this time dumped them outside in the back of the fenced yard. He just wasn't worried about anyone finding the human sludge. He was invincible. I also don't think that should be like leaching into groundwater. No, <laughs> no, no. That can't be approved by city officials. No, I feel no. like what is, what are those um, places Le- called? Leach fields? No. Oh. <laughs> um, oh God. Like the hazardous waste places oh. and they're called something. Super fun. Yeah. Yeah. That one. <laughs> yeah. Which I don't, I don't like that. I also thought it was super fun. <laughs> it's not super it's fun. Not, no. And I'm pretty sure that if you dropped um, human body sulfuric mm-hmm. goo mm-hmm. in an area that it would become a super fun yes, site. Yes, it probably should have. And it didn't. Nope. Well, because they didn't know. For a <laughs> I while. don't know that. I don't know that it did afterwards. Like, oh. Who owns that building? I don't know. Anyway. The coat hanger place? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm unclear about if he actually worked there or just and they it. just let him like like Milton in the office in the office space <laughs> if they just let him be there or in my table I'm the I was told that I can have my radio in a reasonable volume. okay it's probably one of my favorite movies okay anyway off the rails Wanting to replicate his financial success with the McSwans, he made it seem like the Hendersons were still alive by forging letters and continuing to transact under their names Their family wasn't completely trusting. Rose's brother became suspicious and only let it go when John managed to convince him that the Hendersons had fled to South Africa and Dr. Henderson had performed an illegal abortion. So that's why they had to flee. And Rose's brother just didn't know how to contact them if that was true. He had no idea how to get a hold of them and believed it. After bleeding the Hendersons dry, financially and literally, John moved into the Onslow Court Hotel. In case you were wondering, it costs a pretty penny to live semi-permanently in a super nice hotel. I would think so. So yet again, John began to run out of money. He met Olive through dinners and events at the hotel, and it was he whom she told about her fake fingernails idea. Mm. Could he invest? Of course. He could do her one better. He could actually help manufacture the nails. In fact, why don't they head down to his workshop and they can talk in detail about a prototype? Oh, Dun, dun, dun. Poor Olive, who yeah. was so excited about her idea. She was, yeah. It was a great idea, too. And it, it was years that they talked. It wasn't just a couple months. They It was really a developed relationship and friendship, probably. Oh, what a dick. Yeah. John's a dick. Yeah. Hey, hey. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Just like with the Hendersons, once they got into his basement, John shot Olive in the back of the head, removed her jewelry and fur coat, and then put her body in a 40-gallon drum filled with sulfuric acid. Then he went back to the hotel for a three-course dinner. As one does. Definitely the recommended way to spend your time while you wait for a body to dissolve in acid. Gross. Later, he sold her jewelry and took her coat to be cleaned. (laughs) During the investigation into Olive's disappearance, the police brought John in for questioning. He was still completely convinced that he was off the hook without his victim's bodies, so he confessed to his crimes. 
You're kidding. <laughs> of Olive, he said, quote, I've destroyed her with acid. You'll find the sludge that remains at Leopold Road. Every trace has gone. How can you prove murder if there's no body? What? <laughs> yep. What an idiot. <laughs> well, and that's just Olive's. Really putting his eggs all in this no body, no crime basket, John went for broke and voluntarily confessed to the murders of the McSwans and the Hendersons. That he wasn't even being, I don't even know that the police knew about that at that point. I am slack jawed right now. Yep. And a few days later, he actually admitted, um, or he submitted a written statement taking credit for three more murders, none of which could be substantiated. What an idiot. (laughs) Yep. Now, even if John had been correct that he couldn't be found guilty of murder without a body, which we know is not true. Right. They weren't entirely gone anyway. Investigators had no trouble locating the remains in the yard. There were zigzagging marks from where someone had rolled and dragged something heavy, like maybe a 40-gallon drum, across the grass. In the corner of the yard, there was a pile of sludge, three to four inches deep and covering several feet mixed with dirt and trash. Mm -hmm. The team gathered a whopping 475 pounds of sludge. Oh my gosh. Which blew my mind. Oh, that's a lot of sludge. At that point, you're talking like five people, six, six people with Olive. And all of that acid. Yep. Yep. And their clothes and other things he'd put in there. Oh. Yep. So they brought it back to the lab for further investigation. After three days of digging through, and God bless the people who had that job. What did that smell like? I, I don't know what... Yeah, the smell would be bad. The the look of it would be bad. The, the texture. The, yeah, the yeah. consistency. Oh. Wow. Oh. That's gross. Yeah. In the sludge, they found a phalange. <laughs> Did they find a phalange? I feel like a phalange would remain. And then some. Okay. Okay. They found the handle of a red plastic bag. Okay. Like a, like a plastic handbag. Yep. A lipstick container. Upper and lower dentures intact. Oh. 18 fragments of human bone, three gallstones. Oh. Yep. Which actually was identified by a doctor because that's not, you You and I probably wouldn't look at that and be like, oh, that's a gallstone. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> uh, part of a left foot, probably oh. with said phalanges, oh. not quite eroded, and 28 pounds of human body fat. Aren't phalanges fingers? Are they? <laughs> I thought they, I thought it applied to both. What, what are toes then? Tolanges? <laughs> 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 you uh, knew that was coming i don't know okay we consulted the googs it is tolanges <laughs> no, no it is phalanges for both it is yeah. laura has educated me this evening <laughs> she listened and learned and i knew there were phalanges in there <laughs> i just knew it i'm not sure how many my spidey senses were tingling with <laughs> yeah. the phalanges in the goo <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Ugh. anyway to no one's surprise except his own John Hay was charged with the murder of Olive Durand Deacon on March 2nd, 1949. Um, And I have to say that every time I write Durand Deacon in this episode, I think Durand Durand (laughs) every single time. Anyway, upon his arrest, he evidently asked how difficult it was to escape from Broadmoor, which is a psychiatric (laughs) facility. (laughs) He's like, can you tell me what's the easiest way to escape from (laughs) this facility? John's trial began on July 18th, 1949. Although John entered a not guilty plea, this was not a difficult case for the prosecution. And it was said that the purpose of the trial was not really to prove that he had committed murder, but essentially to show whether or not he was insane. The prosecution only took a day to present their case. 
there was already significant circumstantial evidence. From the witness interviews, police knew that Olive had been with John on the last day she had been alive. Now, of course, they also had John's confession. Right. And now there was also physical evidence. Olive's dentist had taken the stand to confirm that the dentures found in John's yard were hers. Oh, wow. And one of the bone fragments was found to have osteoarthritis in the joints, a condition which she had. Blood stains were found on her fur coat. I guess the dry cleaner didn't do a very good job, by the way. Um, it's got to be hard to get blood out of fur. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. As well as on the cuffs of one of John's shirts. And the part of the red bag that had been uncovered was confirmed as being one of Olive's. And then they also just found it tossed aside in the yard later. Right. So naturally. He wasn't worried about evidence. No. Nope. No body, no crime. <laughs> he really... that He should have that on his tombstone. He clung to it like a life raft. Yeah. <laughs> like a like a rock of a life raft. <laughs> yes. Dr. Turfitt, the police scientist on the forensic team, decided to experiment with sulfuric acid. He used an amputated human foot, a sheep's leg, and other organic materials, finding that the acid worked at varying speeds depending on how much water was present. Fat proved highly resistant. So Olive's weight had actually preserved the items found in the sludge, which made it easier to identify. See, that's why I stay fat. So that if anybody ever puts me in an acid bath, (laughs) my remains will remain long enough for them to get caught. (laughs) So I I then said I wanted to make some kind of thick thighs save lives joke, but like lives are lost. So yeah, but maybe, maybe more lives would have been lost had it not been for that. So yeah. Anyway, although the prosecution called 33 witnesses, the defense only cross-examined four of them. Their focus was on showing that John was insane. So in order to show that, they claimed that John was in a good mood at dinner. And that was after Olive's murder. So obviously he couldn't have committed murder if he was in a good mood at dinner. Or he's a psychopath. Yeah. Option B. Yeah. They said the fact that John had even confessed in the first place implied he wasn't in his right mind. Which, okay, but no. <laughs> or he's just really stupid. I think I think it's that. Yep. Yeah, a stupid psychopath. <laughs> yes. Now, additionally, John and his defense attorneys also emphasized one particular claim that John had made in his confession and some of his initial statements. He said that once his victims were dead, before he put them in the acid, he drained some of their blood into a cup and drank it. Ew. He said that this desire derived from those recurring religious nightmares he had had when he was a child. He had forgotten them for years, but right before his first murder, he had been in a car accident in which he suffered a a wound to his head, which bled into his mouth, and this caused him to remember the details of the dream. Do you you want to hear about the dream? I'm like deeply disturbed. (laughs) You're going to tell me whether I want to hear it or not. It's not. It's not that bad, but it, it gives you a picture into his mind. Okay. In his words, quote, I saw before me a forest of crucifixes, which gradually turned into trees. At first, there appeared to be dew or rain dripping from the branches, but as I approached, I realized it was blood. Suddenly, the whole forest began to writhe and the trees stark and erect to ooze blood. A man went to each tree, catching the blood. When the cup was full, he approached me. Drink, he said, but I was unable to move. Oh, he's totally in his right mind. That is a horrifying religious nightmare. That, what is that? Is it the not the strangers? There's there's one there's one movie. Uh, where they're like in the woods and there's those tall crucifixes. They're like walking to a cabin. And that's what that makes me think of. I can't think of it. Is it Cabin in the Woods? <laughs> that, that would be logical. I don't remember what it was, but it made me think of that. Huh. 
There's a lot of movie references in there, this episode. There are really bad ones. Really bad. We're like, <laughs> can't like think of movie? the name of that movie, but like there was a movie about that. It was an egg with a side part. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that John drank the blood of his victims led the newspapers to refer to him as a vampire. Um, yeah, I can naturally, see why. Yeah. This trial was greatly covered in the newspapers at the time, but they were limited in what they could print while the trial was still going. Mm hmm. That didn't stop them from trying to get the best story. In fact, one paper had agreed to pay for John's legal fees in exchange for exclusive rights to his life story. Oh, no. Another one of these papers, the Daily Mirror, went too far. They printed an article in which they called John a murderer and emphasized the vampire aspect of the crimes. So that was a problem, according to the courts, because he was still on trial and therefore mm -hmm. innocent until proven guilty. Right. Amazingly, their editor, as well as their publishers, were brought in on charges of contempt of court. Wow. The editor was sentenced to three months in prison. Holy shit. Funny enough, where John was incarcerated. <laughs> and the company... Exclusive interviews yeah, from within. Yeah, actually, that'd be brilliant. He's like, can you put me in that cell? <laughs> and the company itself was fined 10,000 pounds. Wow. Anyway, although many psychiatrists evaluated John and came to the same conclusion that he was a weirdo, but likely hamming it up for the trial... They determined that he was very aware of what he had done. Right. One doctor for the defense tried to claim otherwise. Dr. Henry Yellow Lees. <laughs> so close. So close. So far. Not our favorite no. Henry Lee. No. Thought that John had paranoid constitution, which is when one displays the characteristic triad of suspiciousness, grandiosity, and feelings of persecution. Mm, winning, winning character yeah. traits. Also known as contentious psychopathy, psychologists have said that Hitler had this disorder as well. Dr. Yellowlees described a variety of seemingly legitimate reasons why he had come to this diagnosis with John. The defense attorney concluded there was no way John could have known what he was doing was wrong. Therefore, he should be consider considered insane. No. <laughs> exactly. Now, the prosecution was far more interested in cross-examination than the defense had been. They jumped right on Dr. Yellowlees, and it was soon discovered that John had previously befriended an employee of a psychiatric hospital and learned the behavioral patterns, traits, oh. and habits of various disorders. Dude, he is a psychopath. Uh -huh. the, uh -huh. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that does not help his case. No. They also got Dr. Yellowlees to admit that despite all his visits to the prison, he only spent about two total hours with John and had no objective evidence to confirm anything John had told him. Mm-hmm. The prosecution got him to admit that he actually could not express an opinion on whether John knew what he was doing was morally wrong and that he did seem to know that what he was doing was wrong by law as evident from his attempt to cover up his crimes. Oh, okay. So, in other words, because he knew what he was doing was wrong because he was trying to hide the bodies. Right, yeah. Th he wasn't insane. Right. Ultimately, the defense had no leg to stand on. It was probably dissolved in acid. Oh my God. I was thinking <laughs> I that had too. I had so to. bad. No phalanges for them. So bad. <laughs> None. The jury took just 17 minutes to deliberate. <laughs> that long? They found him not guilty. I'm just kidding. <laughs> John was found guilty and the judge sentenced him to death. Oof. Before his death, John finished writing his life story and handed it over to the newspaper. Of course. I, I did not read that. Oh. His parents didn't attend his trial or even visit him before he died. They just sent their best via the newspapers. Wow. Mm. They had disowned him. Did know? he die via guillotine? No, no. Oh. On the last day of his life, he drank a glass of brandy and told the world he believed in reincarnation, that his mission was not yet finished and he would be back. Better brandy than blood. Mm, it is true. 
On August 6th, 1949, just a few days after his 40th birthday, John Hay was hanged, leaving the company of the living, but solidifying his place in history. Good riddance. Got one more grim fact for you. He had agreed to have a wax figure created for him in Madame Tussaud's Chamber of Horrors. Before he died, he had been fitted for a mask, and he donated his clothes as well, with the agreement that they should always be kept in perfect condition. The trousers creased, the hair parted, his shirt cuffs showing. Wow. Yep. So that's John Hey, Hey, Hey. Hey, Hey, Hey. Wow. That was really fucked up. I'm yeah. happy that Entertaining. He was, I'm happy that he's so stupid. Yes. Me because too. I hate when they're really smart yes. and it keeps them from getting caught Correct. for a much longer time. That would be the main difference. This gave me a lot of H.H. H. Holmes vibes, except the smart part. Yeah. Um, cause he did a lot, just the same, like being really polished and, um, you know, just able to talk well and he didn't smile. Have a, he didn't have a murder castle though. It was no. a murder basement. A murder basement. Yeah. 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 He was like the poor man's version of H.H. H. Holmes. But he murdered people with really great names. He did. And I think his ways of murdering, well, the murdering itself wasn't that creative of gun and a lead pipe, whatever, right. but the getting rid of the bodies was way cooler than an incinerator. Yeah, gross though. So gross. Like really gross. I yeah. I don't want any part of that. We're, yeah. Yeah. Not that I normally do. I <laughs> normally don't want any part in the murders we discuss, but extra that one. Mhm. Yeah, cuz it's really gross. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know. Thanks a lot for that. You're so welcome. And hey, uh if you're listening, well, you are listening. You are listening. <laughs> if you're if enjoying you're it while you're listening, <laughs> make sure you're getting the most in between episodes. You can find us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast and on Facebook, just search Grim a True Crime Podcast. Or even better, you can subscribe to our Patreon by searching Grim, a true crime podcast on the Patreon app or website. We actually just recorded a, another P-Bony right before this, and it was really, really good at slash disturbing. So uh, go check that out. You can send us an email at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. And that's also where you can send case suggestions. Wherever you do listen, please rate us or even better, leave a written review. Thanks for being here. And remember, listen, learn, and stay alive until next time, because the future is grim.